Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me. We are talking about 2 Kings 2 through 7 today, which is about the prophet Elisha and his tremendous 65 year ministry in Israel. This is another great prophet who is largely ignored by the people of Israel. So another prophet that preaches and ministers to Israel when there is great wickedness and a lot of rebellion against God, kings in both the north and the southern kingdoms who lead the people in unrighteousness to varying degrees. This is a prophet who, in that approximately 65-year ministry, does many of the things the Savior did when he ministered on the earth. He feeds a large group with a small amount of food. He raises the dead. He cures leprosy. He increases the supply of something. Remember, Christ's first known miracle was increasing the supply of wine. When at the wedding in Cana, his mother comes to him and says, we're out of wine. He does that for a widow with two sons who has no way to stave off the creditors who are going to take her two sons and put them in prison because of debts that the father left who is now dead, and he tells her to go and get all the empty vessels that she possibly can borrow or find, and then to take her one cruise of oil and pour it into all those other vessels and fill them and then sell them and take care of the debts as well as to then provide for the future for herself and her sons. He cures barrenness. There's a tender character here in chapter 4 of Second Kings, a Shunammite woman. We don't know her name, but she's referred to as a great woman. And she notices the prophet Elisha, and, and when he comes by, obviously an acknowledgment of who he is and an awareness of his holiness, gives him food and, and drink when he comes by, and then even asks her husband, let's prepare a room so that he can even stay with us when he needs to on his travels back and forth. And so they do that. And without even asking the prophet you know, for some kind of recompense, the prophet promises her that she will have a child because she has never had a child. And she has a son, and that son grows. And so there's, again, this is a 65-year ministry, so during this time, the the boy grows up, and he's in the fields and so on, but he dies. He, He becomes sick. He goes home to his mother. She holds him for a while, and he dies. And then the woman does go to the prophet Elisha asking for help. You know, did you give me this son just to take it away, kind of? But in faith, and he comes to her home where the child is upstairs in the room that Elisha uses and brings the child back to life. Truly an amazing Savior-like miracle. Elijah, his mentor, did the same. So many of these are an echo of that. And at the beginning, it's kind of nice. We, We pick up right there when Elijah is taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot and has divided the River Jordan in order to cross over to the ground where that happens. And Elisha is with him, takes up the mantle of the prophet, and then separates the waters of Jordan to cross over back into Israel. So a lot of continuation of the great ministry of of Elijah, his teacher and mentor. He wants nothing more than a double portion of Elijah's spirit, which Elijah said that's going to be a hard thing, but certainly receives the mantle of the prophet. He makes an axe head float, which is just a smaller miracle with somebody who is trying to do some work, and the axe head falls into a body of water and, of course, sinks from the weight of it and the powers of gravity. And it's a borrowed axe, so he's very distressed, and Elisha makes it float. And it does. It floats to the top and is able to be recovered. So some tremendous 
stories here. In chapter 5, there's the story of Naaman, who is the captain of the king's hosts of Syria. There's a video on this in the curriculum, and it's, it's a sweet video. Again, they do a nice job with these. And I think they make it very clear that the implication is that this was a, a pretty good man. I mean, he's not a member of the House of Israel, but he's loved by his servants. There's even a little Jewish maid service or a little Israelitish maid servant that is serving his wife in her household that was taken captive on one of the raids or contests between Syria and Israel. And she is the one who first mentions Elisha the prophet, you know, would that my master would go because the prophet could heal him. Now, why would a captive maid servant, you know, care about the well-being and health of her master unless he was a nice guy and she was being treated well and cared for herself in some respects, I guess. And then again, we see that later when Naaman follows sort of the political channels first. He goes to the king of Syria, who writes a letter to the king of Israel, who is pretty troubled by the letter because he's like, how am I supposed to heal him? Is he just trying to cause a fight with me? Because I can't possibly do that. But Elisha hears of the king's trouble, who's not necessarily a righteous guy, but he he says, all right. He says, send him to me because he will know then that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, that the Lord has still chosen this people. And even if they don't choose him, He is kind to them. He still has a prophet in their midst that can bless them if they are righteous. And there are a few righteous, as we see here and there. This widow woman who has helped, the Shunammite woman, you know, there are some others who are are righteous. That little Israelitish maid, these are righteous people. Anyway, Naaman comes and Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him, but even though he has brought great, you know, treasures, silver and gold and, and lots of clothing, raiment, you know, that is costly and is willing to give this to someone who can heal him. And instead, Elisha doesn't even come out, but just sends a message and tell him to go bathe seven times in the River Jordan. And he's kind of affronted by that, as the record says. He's wroth because he's like, seriously, he doesn't even come out to see me? And don't we have rivers in Syria that are better than the River Jordan, which was a pretty muddy river? And yet, again, his servants care about him enough that they persuade him. Like, hey, if he'd ask you to do some great thing. Now, this is there's a nice message in this, right? And the, the big message is that by small and simple things, much good has been brought to pass in the past, in the present, and in the future. That God uses small means on many occasions as just a focus of our faith. Like when Christ heals the blind man, he creates a little clay with some dirt and some spittle and uses that as, a, as kind of a focus of faith. Because, of course, Christ didn't need the implement of the clay to heal the blind man. He doesn't need tools, and yet sometimes there is a a focus for our faith or an act of obedience, like the widow who, he says, go and get all those vessels and then pour oil into them. There's an action that she needs to do in order to demonstrate her faith and allow for the miracle, because as we keep saying, faith precedes the miracle, another title of a wonderful book by Spencer Kimball. And as we saw last week with Elijah, again, the focus of faith for that widow with one son who was out of food almost and was going to take the last of her resources and make one little cake that they could eat together and then die. The focus of her faith there is to give that cake to the prophet Elijah. And then through that act of faith, allow then for the miracle And I I love that concept. I think it's really important that we realize the Lord does require these small and simple things of us. And they are. 
pretty small and simple much of the time. To read our scriptures, to pray in faith, to to study, to you know, minister to each other, to you know, care for the poor and the needy, to be kind, to speak softly, to curb our tempers, to eliminate anger, to I mean when I say easy. I didn't mean easy. Some of those things require some serious effort, but I do mean that they are small and simple. To treat people well is not this gigantic thing about learning how to part the Red Sea or, or being able to have the wisdom of Solomon. What God is saying is like, be obedient. Do these basic things. In our marriages, do we do the small and simple things that we've been counseled to do? Date night. Do we do a date night and make sure that it's not you know, just to check off that we're actually enjoying each other's company. Are we setting aside time to pray as a couple, to, to read scriptures as a couple, to plan as a couple on how to, to serve? You know, there are so many ways that the Lord gives us an opportunity to, through these small and simple acts of faith, prepare ourselves for miracles. President Nelson said this in the recent conference, that there would be miracles in this day, but there must be the faith that precedes them. Small and simple things. Go wash seven times in that muddy river, Jordan. And again, probably a pretty nice guy in most ways, even though he gets he has a little bit of a a reaction there. His servant persuades him, and he allows himself to be persuaded by a servant, which, again, not everybody would do. Pride could certainly get in the way of that kind of response, but instead he, he follows the admonition and creates that little small and simple act of faith by by conforming his behavior to the words of the prophet, and he is healed. And he wants to shower Elisha with gifts, which Elisha refuses. And then there's an interesting little story about Gehazi, his servant, who goes after Naaman in a deceptive way to get some of that for himself. And the leprosy descends upon him because Elisha knows what he has done and you know it's pretty it's pretty low down. I mean, Elisha doesn't bother to go to Naaman and say, "Hey, that was that was not me," but it wasn't him. I, I like the the end of the Naaman story where he says that only God now will I serve because I know that there is a God in Israel. Again, he has a good heart. He says, "I won't worship another God." And he says something interesting. If I bow down before you know the God, if I have to go with my master, the king to one of the pagan temples. May the Lord forgive me of that. I'm not going to sacrifice there. I may have to show up, but I'm not, you know, I don't believe anymore that there are other gods other than the God of Israel. And my heart is set on the God of Israel. So a good man who, through these little acts of faith and because he allows himself to be persuaded by believers, comes to believe that Elisha is a prophet of God and that God is the God of Israel and the only true God. It's a a nice story. I hope you've had a chance to watch that video. Like I said, they do nice jobs with those things. Now, I'm just going to point out that, again, here we have an example of the same thing that happened for Elijah. Remember that when Elijah goes to Ahab and Jezebel after there's like a three to four year famine, and he's staying with the widow and her son and makes sure that their resources never fail as they feed him, but they are able to feed themselves. But when he goes to confront Ahab and Jezebel and ask for that contest with the priests of Baal, Remember how Ahab greets him? Oh, it's you who are troubling Israel. And then, of course, the same kind of thing happens here with Elisha when he confronts the king during the time of famine. The king wants to kill him because of this terrible famine that has come to the point where where the people are being cannibals. They are actually eating their own children. 
So a really severe famine, and the king blames Elisha. Now remember, Elijah responded appropriately, I'm not the one that's troubling Israel, you're troubling Israel because of your unrighteousness, because you have promoted this pagan worship that ruins and destroys the people in unrighteousness and all their fornications and adulteries and and all these licentious practices that are so offensive to God and destructive of the human soul and destructive of marriage and destructive of family and destructive for the children who are, who are witnessing all this and then become involved themselves. Ahab wants to shoot the messenger, and, and so do these kings. They want to, to shoot the messenger and blame the prophets who call out the sin. Now, does that have a familiar ring? I mean, do you remember last August when Elder Holland went to BYU and made some very clear prophetic statements about what needs to happen to clean up that, that act over there where there's too much advocacy? for practices that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole rainbow coalition pride stuff that a lot of professors have gone to toward or some of the CRT that's being taught there, things like that. And he's saying, not at the Lord's University. We are not going to use the funds of the church to support this kind of behavior. And he made a real call for them to clean that up, which I hope is happening. Time will tell, but at any rate, did they just try to shoot the messenger on that one? I mean, he really was Twitter stoned, so to speak, or social media erupted with all kinds of horrible, vicious language toward Elder Holland. The same as when they stoned the prophets in the in the past. So this kill the messenger thing is is something we are witnessing today. We see a lot of attacks, a lot of really horrible things that are leveled against our amazing prophets who are here to warn and forewarn and are here to protect us if we will listen to their counsel and abide by it. And yet so often they are treated with incredible disrespect, even hatred, because they are speaking the words of the Lord. A little personal story here. One of my daughters, this is Faith, who has eight children of her own, emailed President Oaks a note of gratitude for a message that he had delivered in General Conference years ago. And she got a really sweet little email back from him expressing gratitude for for her thanks and and then he said something like as you might imagine there were many who felt differently about the message in other words <laughs> he had gotten a lot of negative feedback for his message i think it concerned having children or family or something like that you know continuing to have families and promoting childbirth i think but anyway, there were a lot of negative messages that he got. And think about it. I mean, we know what he said in the last conference. And in so many conferences, here's a man who speaks for the Lord. We sustain him as a prophet, seer, and revelator. And he reminds us, just in this last April conference, that if God loved us less, he wouldn't tell us the principles on which happiness is truly based. That exaltation in the kingdom, the fulfillment of our potential, comes only through the marriage of a man and a woman in the highest level of the celestial kingdom if we keep our covenants or prepare to do so when we have an opportunity to marry because not everybody will find their partner in this life or will have a partner who is similarly motivated. So if we use this life, though, to become ready for that level of exaltation, the Lord can bless us with that culmination of joy, that fullness of joy, only through these principles. And if he loved us less, he would he would not ask the prophets, he would not instruct the prophets to continue to teach and remind us. So anyway, too often it's kill the messenger and the prophets 
the messengers of the Lord, are often hated and persecuted. And Christ told us this again in the Beatitudes, right? Where blessed are you if you're despised and persecuted. For so persecuted they the prophets. So when we speak truth and we share the messages, sometimes even within our own families or with close friends, we may be hated too for speaking truth, but we're in good company. And it is important that we not be fearful of losing the regard or accolades of the world and in doing so, trample under our feet the God of Israel. So I think that's a really important message. Now, one of my favorite stories here, and frankly, it's one of my favorites in the Old Testament, comes in chapter 6 of Second Kings. And this is a very familiar story. You know this. Elisha is giving some counsel to the king of Israel. You know, whether he deserves it or not, I suppose the Lord is instructing him to guide the king of Israel. Syria is on the attack again, and they're trying to come in and take the king. And so this is, I think, verse 8 of chapter 6 in 2 Kings. The king of Syria warred against Israel, took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. So Elisha knows what the king of Syria is planning through Revelation, and he warns the king of Israel, Don't go to those places because they're planning an ambush. Verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once, not twice. So apparently, you know, this counsel is continuing and the king is taking this counsel from Elisha and is, anyway, taking enough care that he's not captured by the king of Syria. So then verse 11, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing and he called his servants and said unto them, will ye not shew me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the spy? Who's the spy? Who is is telling them what my plans are? And uh, you can imagine how the servants may have been quaking in their boots. Verse 12, one of his servants said, you know, one of those like, oh, king, live forever, you know, <laughs> don't don't kill anybody. It's not us. He says, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. In other words, there's no spy here, but Elisha knows your plans because he is a prophet. And the king, you know, clueless, he's a pagan king here, and he doesn't really get the whole thing with prophets. So he says, okay, we'll go catch Elisha, as if, you know, (laughs) that's going to happen, and the Lord won't be with Elisha. But, you know, he doesn't really understand the scope of the Lord's work, and he thinks he can put an end to this by capturing Elisha. So they surround the city where Elisha is staying that night. And the servant of the man of God rises early and goes forth on the wall of the city and anyway sees that there is the Syrian army all around the city with horses and chariots. And he says, alas, this is verse 15, alas, my master, how shall we do? Verse 16, Elisha's answer is so beautiful. How can this not be one of our favorite principles, right? I mean, there are so many, but this should be up there. And Elisha answers in verse 16, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. (laughs) One of those understatements of all time, you know? They that be with us are more than they that be with them. Because we are not alone when we are on the Lord's side. We do not walk alone when we are on the Lord's side. Remember this, this lovely verse 
one of many such promises in the scriptures. This is section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 88. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Whosoever receiveth you receiveth me, and the same will feed you and clothe you and give you money. And he who feeds you and clothes you or gives you money shall in no wise lose his reward. So the Lord gives us constant reminders, you know, like consider the lilies of the field. Like, like really, do you think I'm not there for you? They that be with us be more than they that be with them. If we are on the Lord's side, who is on the Lord's side? Because that is the side of victory. That is the side of spiritual power and eternal reward. Now, yes, that does not mean we are not going to have trouble in this world because that trouble helps us grow and become. But the Lord is on our side when we are on his side. As he was with Joseph. Remember, it didn't mean Joseph didn't have trouble, that he wasn't betrayed by people who should have loved him. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he was made to prosper in all his doings, even in prison. The Lord did not forget him. And in that time, Joseph's faith was tempered and became powerful and real, and he became a receiver of revelation, was able to interpret dreams and ultimately to save all of his family and the house of Israel and Egypt. So the Lord works with us if we, if we are his. And the promise is real that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Who, whomever that is speaking of, whichever the enemy is around us or the forces that are trying to hurt or destroy. And then this wonderful conclusion of the story, Elisha prays in verse 17 and says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. What a sight. What a sight for that young man to have his eyes open, his spiritual eyes open so that he could see and know that, yes, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. It's all about being on the Lord's side and not fearing the enemy. Fear not, though the enemy deride. Remember again, Elder Bednar spoke of that in the last conference, lovely speech, wonderful hymn that I've loved forever. Courage, for the Lord is on our side. We will fear not what the wicked may say, but the Lord alone we will obey. What great counsel. We should sing that hymn more often. Lots of great messages. Like I've said before, I love the militant hymns of the church <laughs> that remind us we are on the victor's side if we are on the Lord's side. And we can stop fearing the enemy if we, if we recognize that they that are with us are more than they that are with them. Of course, then Elisha prays and the Syrian army is struck with blindness. We don't know if that's literal or, or figurative, but whatever. Anyway, he kind of leads them into a place where they realize that they could be killed and were captured. And instead, he says, here, give them food and let them go. And they leave and they stop troubling Israel. So it all turns out just fine in that amazing instance. And what a tremendous message for us. Now, I want to spend a few minutes talking about this, but opening our eyes that we may see. Now, this is not a comprehensive list, but I was talking with Chris and just kind of saying, like, what are some of the things that would be, would be such a gift if we could have our eyes opened and see? So here are some of the things we discussed And again, there are so many that we could add to the list. I hope you'll think about it and put your own list together about 
what we need to see clearly and what a difference it will make if we can have our spiritual eyes open wide so that we can see clearly the truth of life and salvation. So, you know, we just talked about this one, but how the Lord fulfills his promises. To, to really see that, to trust the Lord. I've talked a lot about trusting the Lord lately, and I just do see that as a fundamental issue. Too often, it's easy to, to lose our trust or never really develop it. And to, you know, we love the Lord in some ways and maybe feel like it's the right thing, the gospel is true or whatever, but we don't really trust that he will come through on his promises, that he understands the situations we're in and can still make those promises that all will be well in the end. That, that our hearts will be healed, our tears will be dried, our wounds will be completely, completely restored, that, that God will replace the ashes of our lives with beauty and give us oil for, for mourning, that he will give us joy for our sorrows, that he will lay upon our wounds a salve of such value as to make us positively glad of the wounds. All those wonderful promises. Can we have our eyes opened and trust that the Lord will fulfill his promises. Can we choose to believe that when we don't see it yet? And again, the definition of faith, believing what we cannot see. But if our eyes were opened, we would see it. Can we learn to see it through faith? What if we could see who we are? What if we could really see ourselves as the Lord sees us, his beloved children who are ourselves, God's in embryo because God has made us with that potential to be like him through the atonement of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that we can become clean and purified and powerful as we keep our covenants, make and keep sacred covenants and come to the Lord in humility and commitment to his path, to his way. What if we could see that? What if we could help our children to see who they are? So important. We're in a world that is really confusing in terms of identity, you know, and, and they really come after our kids at very young ages. They don't even wait for the identity crisis time of adolescence. I mean, it used to be that in adolescence, we all understood that people went through kind of an identity crisis. That was one of Eric Erickson's classic stages, right, of, you know, one of the dilemmas of life that has to be resolved as identity for adolescence. And nevertheless, he doesn't even wait for that anymore. They're coming after our kids at younger and younger ages. I mean, you've heard about the drag queen story hours, about some of the books that are in our libraries. That, I mean, they're coming after our kids' identity and trying to tell them that, that that's a confusing thing and that it can, you know, change from one gender to another and that that's just normal and, and it might make them happier. This is not who we are. The family proclamation is such a gift. What if we could see what a gift the family proclamation is? What if we could see with clear eyes and the eyes of faith how great a blessing it is that our prophets warned and forewarned before all this stuff broke loose? Before it, you know, before we even understood that this was going to become this really bold statement and it seemed so kind of ho-hum in 1995. What if we could see how, how that saves us and our children from the confusion of the world if we understand our identity as male and female before God and that marriage is ordained of God between a man and a woman. That children are entitled to birth within the bonds of marriage by parents who love and respect each other and care for the children. I mean, there are so many wonderful truths that can, 
can keep us safe in a world of confusion because it helps us to see us as we really are. President Nelson talked to the youth of the church recently and talked about this significant, oh, that sounds so mild compared to the meaning behind it, but how incredibly priceless the truth is that we are children of God and that that is our identity. And all the other identities that are being thrust upon us, oppressors or oppressed, you know, victims or victimized, I mean, come on. How precious is it? How priceless is it? If we could see ourselves as we really are, children of God with the potential to be like him and to feel his great love for us. Remember this wonderful verse in Romans 8, which kind of takes me to the to the next part is how much God loves us. What if we could see how much God loves us? And then this great verse in Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? What if our children could learn to see that? Can we transmit that to the next generation? Can we help them to see themselves as God sees them, not as the world tries to tell them they are, and help them to see his great love and to recognize that we've talked about recognizing the love of God. He even loves the sparrows. And he tells us, if I could love the sparrows, how much more do I love you? If we can see that, if we can see it with the eyes of faith and believe him and trust him, that that love is more than enough to see us through all of life's troubles. If we cling to it with trust and obedience, what if we could see, what if our spiritual eyes were opened and we could see that great love and help our children to see it as well? What if we could really see, here's the next one, The reality of who our great God is. I've talked about this before, remember, in lecture third of the Lectures on Faith, Joseph Smith teaching, or all those prophets there teaching, we don't know exactly who voiced these words, but in lecture third it says that there are three things necessary for faith. First, the idea that God exists. Second, a correct understanding of his character, perfections, and attributes. And third, the knowledge that the course we are pursuing is in accordance with his will for us. What if we could see with our spiritual eyes the character, perfections, the attributes of God? What if we could come to know him? And we can. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures, in the temple, in the whisperings of the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Ghost to witness the truth of all things, to help reveal the Savior to us in a sanctifying process if we are true to our covenants and continue to stretch for that knowledge, that sure knowledge that surpasses the knowledge of the senses sight, touch, smell. What if we could see that? And we can. All these things are within our grasp to see with an eye of faith. But when we don't see, we fear, just like the servant who thinks they're surrounded and there's no hope. And that's the opposite. If we don't see clearly, we fear, we fall prey to the philosophies of men or the sophistry of Satan. Going on, a few more ideas here. What if we could see with clarity, the eye of faith, how brief this mortal sojourn is. What if we could put it in perspective? We're talking about eternal perspective right here. Take three giant steps back, look again. Remember that even in the midst of extended suffering, the Lord reminds us, as he did Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, section 121, you know this, thine adversity and affliction shall be but a small moment. And if thou endure it well, God will exalt thee on high. What if we could 
remind ourselves every day and choose to see with an eye of faith how brief this mortal period is in our lives, in our eternal lives, and yet recognize its terrific significance. What if we could see both of those things together? How important and yet how brief. We've mentioned that wonderful message by President Eyring before that, do not delay. Would that help us not to delay our repentance, not to delay our obedience, our commitment, our consecration? our desire to build Zion, if we could see that clearly and see it with an eye of faith every day. Again, teaching our children that this mortal life is not to make us happy, it is to make us holy. Think about that. I had a friend tell me that she'd read a book on marriage by a Christian minister, and I don't remember the name or whatever, but she said that was one of his lines kind of was that marriage is not to make us happy, it is to make us holy. Now, that does not mean the Lord doesn't want us to enjoy the journey and find joy in the journey through Him, through being close to the Spirit, finding the peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of our troubles, finding peace in the midst of the storm, and recognizing our ability to create Zion in the midst of Babylon. That's where the joy and the happiness are, but not to think that like trouble is the problem. The trouble is to make us holy. And if we could help our children see that clearly, how much more resilient and powerful would they be? How anti-fragile might they become if they could see that the troubles of life are not because God doesn't want them to be happy, but because he wants them to be holy? And is there no other way? No, there is no other way. You've got to build those spiritual powers, that spiritual muscle. We have to qualify for those endowments of power and love and charity by Harnessing the natural man by becoming integrated, spirit and flesh, as children of God who want to do his will, and letting that power come, let that sanctifying power come into our lives. What if we could see that clearly and not fumble around in the dark of of wondering what the purposes of life are and, and becoming discouraged or falling into despair or anxiety or depression when troubles come, but understanding the vision of the plan seeing that vision clearly with an eye of faith and moving forward in that faith. A few more. What if we could see the value of each one of God's children, all the people around us? Let me talk about the family first, our brothers and sisters. You know, I used to tell my children this. They didn't really like it, but I think they really did pay attention (laughs) because they, they were responsive. Bless them, wonderful people that they are. But sometimes I would tell them, you know, the way you treat your brothers and sisters in our family growing up is the way you're going to end up treating your spouse. And they were kind of like, oh, no, <laughs> that, that can't be. I would, I would never treat my spouse the way I treat my brother. And they were like, hang on, let's, let's review that. You know, like you have no business treating anybody with anything less than respect and kindness, honesty, courtesy. I'm going to say respect again because it's so important. And and I really tried to help them see how important it was for them to learn to treat the people they lived with with respect. It is so easy to take those people for granted. And I think they did believe that. And I'm happy to say that they that they responded and we did work on that so that they treated each other better as they grew and learned to I think to see each other as valuable, and I hope I hope they had a glimpse of seeing their brothers and sisters as God sees them, people who have such important value. So 
everybody deserves our respect and kindness. That doesn't mean we should be victims. That doesn't mean we have to indulge bad behavior on the part of other people or lie down on the road and let the steamroller run over us. That is not what God wants. He wants non-victim Christians. But if we could realize that there's no excuse for victimizing, there's no excuse for unkindness, for the nasty word, for the put down, for the cheap shot, for the, for the nastiness that is followed with that just kidding, you know, or LOL or whatever. Like, seriously? Like, that's going to take away the, the hurt or the harm? I often have referred these people to these wonderful speeches, one by Marvin Ashton back in, I believe, April of 1992 called The Tongue Can Be a Sharp Sword. And another one by Jeff Holland called The Tongue of Angels. And I really wanted my kids to, to understand how important it is to speak kindly, to harness that, you know, pettiness in us or the disrespect that can rise to the surface so quickly in ridiculous little ways when we feel offended or irritated or we're tired or hungry and we use those things as an excuse to treat people poorly. What if we could see their value? We need to see that value. We need to see how precious every soul is. And then, honestly, how dare we treat others with disrespect when they are loved by God and need to be respected and valued by us, too? I think I kind of skipped this example, so I'm going to actually go back to the who is God. Remember when I said something about if we could understand God's character and perfection and attributes? I just wanted to add to that from Moses chapter 1. Remember, after being in the presence of God, where he is transfigured in order to withstand the glory of God for several hours, then he, Moses, after the vision is over, you know, he basically passes out for a while, and he's just completely drained because of all the glory that he withheld and the changing in his body in order for that to happen. And then he's just exhausted. His physical body is, is trashed after that quickening, kind of like the adrenaline all saps away, but at a bigger level even. And then what does he say? He says, for this cause, and it's sort of a note to self that Moses is doing here. Now, for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Now, we're talking about Moses, who was already a righteous man, who already had received the priesthood from his father-in-law Jethro, who was a righteous family man at this time. But then he's called to be prophet, and he is like, Okay, that's a whole nother level of, of understanding God, to see how great God's glory is. And now I know where I stand on the continuum. Like, wow. Like, man. And then again, we have this in Helaman chapter 12, isn't it? Where it's like, man is less than the dust of the earth. <laughs> For the dust of the earth moveth hither and thither at the command of God. And, you know, men sometimes are more rebellious than that, often are more rebellious than that. So anyway, Moses is just juxtaposing those two things and going like, Wow. Wow. What if we had that knowledge of God's superlative nature? How perfect, how full of glory, how magnificent is our God? Can we, with an eye of faith, believe that? And then would we not be more likely to follow the counsel of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, don't you get how great he is? Don't you get that he has all knowledge, all glory, all power? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. Wouldn't that be easier for that to follow, for us to live a consecrated life if we could keep in mind, keep with our eye of faith 
that clear vision of who God is. And then, like I said, who we are, who our fellow creatures on this planet are. Wouldn't we respect and value them as we should if we could see with an eye of faith every day the eternal value of God's creatures and, of course, the magnificence of God himself? What if we could see how important marriage is? That this is the pinnacle relationship of life. Whether or not we have an opportunity to be married in this life, or whether or not our marriage lasts in this life or fulfills its potential in this life, we still need to see with an eye of faith how important this relationship is. And if we choose to pursue qualifying for eternal marriage, which we can do even as single people or as a person in a marriage with somebody else who's not that interested, we can still qualify if we can understand that this is the, the pinnacle of life. is, And how would our marriages improve if both partners would understand this is, this is God's practice, practice gym for us to learn how to be married people like he is and to learn to treat each other in the way that God desires to put a priority on that relationship. We can't make our partner feel the same way. We can try to persuade and invite and hopefully you know, grow together in that way. But if they are not interested, we can still recognize the eternal significance of this eternal relationship that God offers to the righteous, to those who qualify through their obedience and covenant keeping, whether or not we do that with a partner in this life. Do not despair. God would never deny any of his children the opportunity to qualify for eternal marriage just because they don't have a partner who wants to do the same thing or they don't have a partner at all in this life. Those would not be prerequisites. Does that make sense? What if we could see that and we could we could apply ourselves? But I'm, I'm going to say marriages would be a lot healthier and a lot happier, even going through the natural problems and troubles of life, if both partners could see that. What if we could help our children see how important it is that God has ordained marriage to be between a man and a woman? And how could we exemplify that? By, by the way we live and the way we treat our partners so that our children can see that example in their own homes growing up. How wonderful would that be? And if they're not seeing that example, that doesn't mean we can't talk to them and say, there are things that I hope you'll learn that are in your control. Some things aren't in your control, but recognize what the good patterns are and what the behavior is that is not acceptable to God and that does not lead to good marriage. What if we could see with our spiritual eyes, with an eye of faith, the difference between the philosophies of men mingled with scripture and the true word of God. What if we could see with a discerning eye? Let me just tell you, discernment is such an important quality that we need to learn. We need to learn the gift of discernment, to qualify for that gift, to ask for it, so that we can see truth from error, right from wrong. As Moroni says in chapter 7, actually, I think this is a letter from his father Mormon that he shares with us in his book, there at the end of the Book of Mormon, wonderful letter from his prophet, Father Mormon, who talks about God giving us judgment. He gives it unto us to judge that we may know good from evil as the daylight is from the dark night. We are supposed to have discernment, which is judgment, so we can tell truth from error. And this is not automatic, brothers and sisters. We, we mess this up all the time, all the time. We, we still teach, we still teach that we should not judge. My husband was in a lesson just the other day, 
And they were still being taught in the lesson that we should not judge. And, and my husband raised his hand and, you know, said like, hey, I, you know, I'm going to give a dissenting view on that. And he quoted uh, Moroni 7. We need to judge. We need to have discernment. How are we going to use our agency correctly if we don't judge good from evil? And our children need not to be brought up in that false idea that we don't judge. We don't condemn that's a bridge too far. It's not our place to condemn. We don't have enough information. We certainly aren't omniscient, and God is. So we'll leave the judgment, the final judgments, to God. But to make temporal judgments in this earth, absolutely necessary. Like, who should be their friends? Whom should they marry? Whom should they hire as a babysitter for their kids? Or who should you hire as a babysitter for your kids? We're making judgments all the time, whether we acknowledge it or not, but we need to make righteous judgments and see that some things lead us to Christ and that makes them good and some things lead us away and that makes them bad. Let me just give an example that I heard just the other day. Somebody was making a comment about how how the gift of these younger generations, these, these young people in our lives on the planet today, that they have this great gift of love and that they come and they're so loving and they really care about, for instance, LGBT people and they have this great compassion and love for them, but it just needs to be channeled because it's a gift. But sometimes they, they you know, need to make sure they're following the prophets, which was, I mean, it was a nice idea to follow the prophets. But, you know, I, I actually went and made a, a little comment. To, I had a little discussion with this person after. It was a very positive discussion. But I said, you know, that's not really love. I mean, this is a friend, so I could talk to her openly. And I said, you know, I, I really wouldn't characterize that as love. I think that that's a mistake. I think that that becomes one of the sophistries of Satan to, to say something that sounds, you know, compelling or convincing, but is actually really not sound or accurate and can deceive people. Because here we've taken the word love and we have completely destroyed its meaning. And President Oaks, again, in the last conference, tried to set us straight. So did Elder Christofferson in the conference prior to that. Last fall, when, when he talked about God's love and said that basically, you know, again, that God can't save us in our sins, only from them. That was Elder Christofferson reminding us of that. And President Oaks, who talked about if God, again, I've just mentioned this, if God didn't love his children, he could let go of the rules and say, don't worry about marriage or don't worry about it being between a man and a woman. But because he loves us, he can't betray us by giving us false information or making us think that there is another way to happiness. That is true love. That is godly love. And if we want to love our brothers and sisters, that is the message. Not in a rude, unkind, uncaring, hurtful way. But that doesn't mean people aren't going to be offended by it because people are offended all the time by prophets and, and by others who speak the truth. And again, blessed are ye if you're persecuted, for so persecuted they the prophets. Are we going to shy away from calling it the way it is that true love is telling people the truth? Godly love is telling people the truth, not advocating for things that can never bring happiness. We talked a lot about that a few weeks ago and quoted the prophets in that way. I hope you go back. That's the one on Ruth, Eli, Samuel, and, and talked about how advocacy of, of false ideas is not real love. And we need to discern between what the world calls love, which is indulgence of every natural man appetite, basically, and advocacy for everybody who has their own idea of how happiness is to be achieved at the cost of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us have discernment and see the difference between what the world wants to characterize as love and what love truly is. This is huge. What if we could see that clearly? What if with an eye of faith, we could invite the Spirit into our lives so that we are not deceived? Quoting Elder Holland again, I love this speech. Many of his, you know, we're real fans, aren't we all? Of Elder Holland most of the time anyway, I hope all the time. 
from this speech that was, I think, back in April 2014 called The Costs and Blessings of Discipleship. Sadly enough, my young friend, says Elder Holland, it is a characteristic of our age that if people want any gods at all, they want them to be gods who do not demand much. Comfortable gods and smooth gods who not only don't rock the boat, but don't even row it. Gods who pat us on the head, make us giggle, then tell us to run along and pick marigolds. Talk about man creating God in his own image. (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it? Continuing, Elder Holland says, sometimes, and this seems the greatest irony of all, these folks invoke the name of Jesus as one who was this kind of comfortable God. Really? Elder Holland asks and then continues, just as Christ understood and taught, individuals must remember, even though many in the modern culture seem to forget, and I would add choose to forget, that there is a crucial difference between the commandment to forgive sin, which Christ had an infinite capacity to do, and the warning against condoning it, which he never, ever did even once. Giant difference between the godly love that God and Christ exemplify and our prophets express again and again, as opposed to what the world would characterize as love, a God who doesn't only not rock the boat, but won't even row it and has no power to save. Let me kind of continue on this theme for a moment, if you'll forgive me. We seem to be particularly susceptible in the church to these kinds of sophistries, this confusion of love. I think we've elevated niceness to a very dangerous level. I don't think niceness is what the Lord wants. I think he does want kindness. And I hope you'll think about the distinction between niceness, which is so much more about social acceptability or the feelings of other people, as opposed to kindness, which is more charity, which is more about godly love. If we if we want to define those things correctly, I think that that's what we're going to find. And and yet, because I think there's such a primacy, a kind of this, this in, intense value amongst many church members to be nice, that they can easily be deceived by these distortions of the idea of what love is. And it so often then can be turned into advocacy for things that will never bring happiness. This is so awful and so awful for our children to see our their parents being deceived by this. But let me just mention, I mean, it took a minute to look this up. Anecdotally, I think many of us have heard that Utah is like the, the fraud capital of the nation, kind of the scam capital of the nation, maybe even of the world. So I actually looked it up, and in 2019, somebody did a study, and they found that there are like 1.35 Ponzi schemes per 100,000 population in the state of Utah. 1.35 Ponzi schemes per 100,000 in the population of the state of Utah. Florida is number two. Now, why might that be? I'm just guessing. But they have a a very elderly population in Florida. A lot of people go there to retire, right? So they are disproportionately swung in their demographics toward an older population. And older people are often taken advantage of by con artists, right? But what's our excuse in Utah? We're actually one of the younger states because we tend to have more children and bigger families in Utah. I think we lead the nation in birth rate in Utah, not by much, We're kind of losing our focus on the mandate to multiply and replenish the earth, even here, but we still are ahead of most of the rest of the nation. I think maybe we're the highest in the nation of birth rate. So it's not because we're an older population here. I think it's because we don't 
have good discernment. And we're, we're so concerned about being nice to people that we let ourselves get taken advantage of. Florida, number two in the nation. Now, look at the difference in the number. 0.51 per 100,000. Utah, 1.35 per 100,000. Florida, 0.51 per 100,000. That is nearly two-thirds fewer that are taken in by a Ponzi scheme in Florida that has that really elderly population than in Utah, where we tend to be one of the younger populations. We are too trusting. I've heard so many people say, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And I'm like, you know, the Lord didn't really say that. I mean, are you, you're familiar with this verse in Matthew 10, aren't you? Remember, he's talking to his disciples and he says, I send you forth as sheep amongst the wolves. <laughs> Here's the savior of the world saying like, get a grip. Get a grip. I'm not sending you out there to trust everybody. I'm sending you forth as sheep amongst the wolves. There are people who are not your friend, people who are not on your side, and they should not be trusted. And then what does he say? And this is a wonderful policy for business, for everything, in my opinion, for relationships. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So that's the Lord's policy. Be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. In other words, don't put any fine print in your contracts. Don't you take advantage of anybody else. That's never okay with the Lord to take advantage of anybody. Don't you be the scam or the fraud person or the con artist. That is completely unacceptable to God. But don't you think that they're, don't you ever stop reading the fine print in everybody else's contract. Don't think that everybody else is your friend or that they're honest in their dealings or that they, you know, are just, they just mean well. Like that is not the Lord's way. He wants us to be discerning. He wants us to, to be able to, to pay attention. And kindness does not mean trusting everybody. This is so important to teach our children. What if we could see with that discerning eye? What if we had the spiritual eyes to see? And with an eye of faith, we could understand the importance of making correct judgment. Great speech. I'll mention it again. I've mentioned it many times. Dallin Oaks at BYU called Judge Not and Judging. Terrific speech about the importance of making these temporal judgments and not thinking that we should go around with our eyes closed or or as just easy marks for somebody who comes by and takes advantage that is not what the lord wants of his people and we are sadly you know so extreme that we are 1.35 out of 100,000 likely to to be involved in a ponzi scheme or have been taken by a ponzi scheme as opposed to state number 2 which is only 0.51 this is this is terrible can't we do better than this? Can't we, can't we see more clearly? Can't we have the spiritual eyes to discern and be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and teach our children to do that as well? And that's a far cry from being judgmental jerks. You know, we're not talking about condemning people or you know being harsh in our view of them. I mean, it's there, but for the grace of God, go I. We have no business condemning, but that doesn't mean we should have our eyes closed to the fact that not everybody is trustworthy or wanting to be on the Lord's side, or or on our side, for that matter. So this kind of leads us to what if we could see clearly the reality of Satan and the reality of evil? Like, there are too many people who are just like, hey, it's just because, you know, they don't have opportunities or whatever. Well, guess what? There really is evil in the world. Not everybody means well. Oh, by the way, I'd have to mention that those are just Ponzi schemes. That's not Lots of other ways that people con others out of money or resources. So there are other ways that Utah has also seemed to be very high in fraud. Just that was kind of an interesting stat on the Ponzi schemes to me. But what if we could 
What if we could really understand that Satan is the enemy and he has a lot of people who are working for him right now? And again, from 2 Nephi 2, remembering that he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself, that the plan of the adversary is to destroy us. And it's real. I wouldn't obsess a lot about this. God doesn't want us to be fearful because if we trust in him and listen to his voice and follow his commandments, including that we not be easily deceived by people who don't mean well because we learn how to be discerning and we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves, he can protect and bless us. Doesn't mean that there won't be other trials, but we don't need to be easy marks. And recognizing that that there is an adversary who would destroy us if he could, if we keep safe on the path toward Jesus Christ, working to keep our covenants, striving to keep our covenants as imperfect human beings, but committed all in to the gospel, he will bless us so that we can grow in all of these areas if we had the eyes to see that this is available to us. Last thought, what if we could see with an eye of faith how great the blessings of exaltation are? From 1 Corinthians 2, this is very familiar. I hath not seen, neither ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. What if we could keep that front and center and see with an eye of faith how great those things are beyond our ability to conceive or conceptualize in this world? But what if we could catch a glimpse of that? The Lord tries to tell us how great it is. And then the next statement in 2 Corinthians 2 is this, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things Yea, the deep things of God. In other words, we can, through an eye of faith, have a glimpse of how great the things are that God has prepared for them that love him. What if we could keep that front and center and see with our spiritual eyes every day how wonderful the things are that God wants to give us? What if we could keep that as a shining light and a beacon, the beacon of Christ himself who in whom is every good gift. What if we could see Christ every day with an eye of faith? That's what all of this comes down to, is what if we could see the Savior as he really is, our advocate before the Father, our Savior and Redeemer, the Lamb of God who was slain for us, the victor over sin, the Lion of Judah, the Alpha and Omega, the Creator, the One who loves and redeems and saves us. The Lord tells us that we can know the truth if we if we come to see with an eye of faith that that truth will set us free. That's what I'm talking about. These things that we could see with our spiritual eyes can set us free from the bonds of sin. They can set us free from the sophistry of Satan, from the deceptions of the world. They can set us free from selling our our birthright for a mess of pottage. They can protect us from that. They can protect us from the evil around us. They can help make us non-victim Christians. Brothers and sisters, we can do this. We can choose glory as we tutor our vision and, and see with an eye of faith. We can build Zion. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.